Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Pierre Polyev's call to rewrite the budget. Justin Trudeau, cancel the surfing, get back to work. The budget implementation bill has already passed and the Conservative leader's call is certain to be ignored by the Prime Minister. So what is Pierre Polyev trying to achieve? We will speak to our weekly journalist panel. And... It's a hoax. The whole thing is a hoax. Donald Trump is indicted for refusing to hand back secret documents. It is the first time that a former U.S. president has been charged federally. But will it actually help him win the Republican nomination? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Michael Serapio. Well, as Parliament's spring session draws to a close, Conservatives are calling on the Prime Minister to cancel his summer plans. Pierre Polyev saying his caucus is willing to work through June and beyond in order to get a balanced budget instead of the Liberal budget that passed in the House earlier this week. Could he not cancel his summer vacation to fight the inflation that he has caused in our country? Could he not put the, 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 the mortgage payments of ordinary Canadians ahead of his tan or his surfing lessons? Well, to talk about this and the week that was in Ottawa, we're now joined by our journalist panel. Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Joël-Denis Bellevance is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. And Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. I'm the only one that's not a Bureau Chief, but welcome to the three of you. <laughs> Good to see you, Michael. <laughs> Listen, uh, let's begin, uh, obviously, with what we just heard from Pierre Polia, because uh, as everyone knows, the budget implementation bill was already passed. And here he is calling on people to, 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 to cancel their, their their summer vacations, which clearly is not going to happen in Ottawa. Is this nothing more than political theater, Tonda? Well, yes, it is political theater, and uh, that's, you know, in part, part of the politician's job, isn't it, um, to draw attention. Mm. It's, it's smart in one sense that it gets the Conservatives back on a message that's a strong message for them, which is the focus on the economy and the impact on, on households. But, uh, you know, whether it was constructive political theater, I think that's arguable. I don't think that Mr. Poiliev in his four, nearly four hours of being on his feet for the Pierre Poiliev show. Uh, Otherwise known as the filibuster attempt. Well, it wasn't even a filibuster because the debate had already been limited. So, so it was, it didn't advance constructive policy or change because the 900 amendments that the, the party had wanted to bring in simply deleted every clause in the budget bill. So yes, theater. Um, but I would say, look, I mean, Mr. Poiliev has a knack for communications and to see him stand on his feet for those four hours, well, you know, that's something. I mean, if the politics gig doesn't work out for him, he could probably host a show on YouTube. He's got the gift of gab. <laughs> Toastmasters. But no, it's, it's part of, it is part of the, the job to, to do whatever uh, procedural trick you, you have in your toolbox to, to, to use it. But in this case, uh, this late in the session, it, it shows that they've, spent so many weeks on foreign interference that they've actually neglected one of their best issues. But mm -hmm. one of the best issues, the, the economy. And you know, Bob, that, that makes me wonder about how the Liberals are being viewed right now. When it comes to economic performance, are they vulnerable? Well, they're very vulnerable. All the polls show that cost of living is uh, the number one concern of Canadians. There was an abacus poll that had at mm -hmm. six, 70, 78% of Canadians are very worried about high interest rates and inflation. 
and they see the conservatives as being a better uh, vehicle for handling this. There, I think it was something like 31% of people compared to 17% for the Liberals and 16% for the NDP. So this is a really good vehicle for the uh, poly of conservatives to run on over the summer months. They, they, they got a little bit sidetracked, not just on Chinese interference, but there was a series of announcements on EI battery plants and electric vehicle plants uh, that although costing a lot of money, they were all, some of these plants were in so were all they're all in southern Ontario and some in Quebec, but they were also in areas where the, the Conservatives held some seats and the, and they want to win some seats. So they they're really handcuffed and not being able to criticize that. So they kind of switched over to Chinese foreign interference, which although important in our democracy, does not translate into votes. So they've moved now into uh, with the Bank of Canada rate going mm -hmm. up um, they moved into the economy is where they should be because that is the number one concern of Canadians yeah although you know you mm -hmm. raise EV battery plants you know and that makes me wonder about the liberal budget that is because just to, to stand against that budget is to also uh, make an argument against things like uh, more money for health care dental care uh, green investments for future jobs so if that's the case what exactly is Pierre Poliev suggesting as an alternative to that uh, that's the big question we mm -hmm. keep asking Mr. Poliev and we have had we haven't had any precise answers on that front so he still has some work to do and he was told when there was a conference of conservatives in Ottawa uh, a couple of months ago by Stephen Harper do not divulge or release your platform yet wait until the election campaign and I think that's the strategy that he's following because it was a winning strategy for Mr. Harper himself but for sure, I, I want to come back to what Mr. Poliev did this week. I think it's part of the political marketing that he's trying to do, uh, bring back the conservative to where they're strong, the economy and all that. And also, uh, I think he did, uh, you know, f uh, maybe it was a stunt, but I think he did score some political points in the sense that he's talking to people when he talks about yeah. uh, mortgages. And the Liberals answer to those problems that, hey, listen, we've got the lowest GDP uh, debt ratio of all the countries. Well, how does that help the uh, little people trying to pay the bills? It doesn't help. So the, I think the Liberals will have to adjust their economic uh, communications because Mr. Kupoyev is talking to people they are talking to academics, the liberals. Yeah, well, you know, certainly as this issue comes back for the conservatives, it makes me think about his very first speech when he won the leadership, just how strong yeah. a communicative mm -hmm. message yeah. that was and just how much immediate resonance that had only to switch to another topic. Uh, but uh, for now, thank you very much yeah. for this. Uh, Bob Fife, Tana McCharles, Georges-Denis Bellivance. Thank you. Well, by now, many people around the world are aware that Donald Trump, the former U.S. president, was un indicted Thursday night, facing 38 charges that include making false statements, obstructing justice, and violating the U.S. Espionage Act. Now, this is the first time a former U.S. president has ever faced federal charges, the second time Donald Trump has been indicted on criminal charges, not to mention the extraordinary moment of a former U.S. president being prosecuted by the administration of the man who defeated him. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent person. Uh, they had the Mueller hoax, the Mueller report, and that came out. No collusion after two and a half years. That was set up by Hillary Clinton and Democrats. But this is what they do. This is what they do so well. It's a hoax. The whole thing is a hoax. Just like Russia, 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 just like the fake dossier was a hoax. You saw the Durham report, you saw the Mueller report, 
It was all a big hoax. You had two impeachments and they lost and we won and we had tremendous support. But that was a hoax and a scam. And now they're doing it again. It's just a continuation, seven years, even after I'm out. But it's called election interference. They're trying to destroy your reputation so they can win an election. That's just as bad as doing any of the other things that have been done over the last number of years, and especially during the 2020 election. So I just want to tell you, I'm an innocent man. I did nothing wrong. Well, with more, we're now joined by David Leventhal, editor-in-chief of Raw Story. Dave, good to see you. Good to see you, Michael. Now, these federal charges, they, they do stem from these classified documents that Donald Trump not only took away from the White House, but also refused to give back when he was subpoenaed to do so. But, you know, the, the argument, uh, as you know, has always been from Trump that he was U.S. president. These these documents, therefore, were declassified for him. Uh, talk to us about the, the argument being now made by the special counsel. The argument is basically that the president, once he no longer is president, doesn't have any of those powers that he had when he was president. So Donald Trump on January 20th, 2021, he was out of the White House. And when he took classified information that was allegedly still very classified, not declassified at all, and took it to his residence in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, and now we're finding information evidence, photos that indicate that it was being stored in bathrooms, in showers, and in areas that were potentially accessible to the public, and that this information contains very, very sensitive, highly classified information that deals with nuclear security, attack plans from the military, incredibly serious stuff that that, that was available. This is ultimately where we get to the rub and whether Donald Trump was truly putting the nation's security at risk. Okay, that said, congressional Republicans, uh, before the indictment was actually unsealed on Friday, they have already been closing ranks around the former U.S. president. They point out that Donald Trump is not alone. Joe, Joe Biden is also being investigated by special counsel regarding uh, documents taken away from the White House. Uh, at that point, uh, he was the U.S. vice president is what that goes to. Talk to us about what you're hearing from Republicans today. And Republicans are making exactly that case that, hey, Donald Trump is not alone. This seems to be some sort of weaponization of the Department of Justice against Donald Trump because the Biden administration doesn't like Donald Trump and Donald Trump's politics. But there are major differences between the situation involving Donald Trump and the situation with classified documents involving Joe Biden. First and foremost, Joe Biden says, I didn't even know these documents were in my possession. Lots of stuff gets moved when you leave the vice presidency. I didn't take these. And when we found them, then we immediately and voluntarily alerted the National Archives and the federal government and, and, and participated in an investigation and were, were working with the government there. Donald Trump, on the other hand, the argument from the special counsel is he willfully took classified material that was of the most sensitive sort. He knew that he had it. He shared it with other people allegedly, including somebody from a super PAC that's supporting Donald Trump and others, uh, and, and, and effectively giving this information to people who had no business having it, which, of course, you can see where the argument is made that that was posing a, a massive security threat for, for the U.S., uh, in addition to, of course, it being patently illegal for somebody, regardless of whether you're a former president or not, to do in that regard. Okay, let me pick up on that point that you say, though, uh, about Republicans essentially accusing Democrats of weaponizing the Justice Department. Because if that's the argument being made, 
I'm wondering if this is going to help or hurt Donald Trump. He's still the, the lead contender for the Republican nomination at this point. Does or do the indictments hurt him? Or does the charge from Republicans that it's a weaponized uh, process that we're watching here help his nomination process? So in the short term, it's almost certainly going to help him with the people who will always believe that Donald Trump is right, Donald Trump is telling the truth, and that this is, as Donald Trump likes to say, one giant massive conspiratorial witch hunt against the former president of the United States, stemming back to the earliest days when he was president of the United States. But one problem here, Donald Trump, he can argue that Democrats are going after him, but the special counsel needed to conduct dozens, hundreds of interviews, oftentimes with people who were working for Donald Trump, associates of Donald Trump, and had firsthand knowledge or other very essential knowledge about what Donald Trump was and was not doing with this classified information and material. So Donald Trump's own words have indicated, according to the 49-page indictment document, that he was well aware that he was in possession of classified information that he should not be in possession of by law. So Special Counsel uh, Jack Smith basically said, look, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we are using other people's words here and information and had to prove that to a grand jury that ultimately indicted the president and Donald Trump will have his day in court to prove otherwise. So to your question about long-term, is this gonna help Donald Trump? Well, you know, he's got 12 other opponents running against him for the Republican nomination. He doesn't have just Joe Biden and the Democrats to worry about. He has a political massive issue here because he has to run a campaign if he continues to run for president of the United States as ostensibly he is gonna to continue to do. Okay, he, he has a campaign to run, but you know, talk to us about the, the penalty here. Well, what kind of penalty does Donald Trump actually face if he's found guilty of, you know, forget about the Manhattan charges, but the, this, these federal charges, again, 38 counts. What is uh, the time that he's potentially looking at? Yeah, and Michael, it's easy to forget that Donald Trump is also under in, has been indicted and has been arraigned on charges in Manhattan, in New York, that are separate and apart on a parallel track to the situation that we're talking about today. But how long could Donald Trump potentially face in a federal prison as a result of this? I mean, we're talking about what would almost certainly be the rest of his life, uh, charges that taken together could put him in for decades if ultimately he was convicted and sentenced to a jail sentence. But we're also dealing with an unbelievably original, novel, unprecedented situation. We've never had a president of the United States been criminally charged in this fashion. We've never had a former or current president, for that matter, in a situation like this. So in essence, there's no template. There is no playbook. There, there's no nothing. And, and you have to kind of go back to what Jack Smith said today. He said, we have one set of laws in this country and all Americans have to abide by that one set of law. There's not a special set of laws for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden. And it's going to be the measurement against those laws that Donald Trump is going to have to stand up against as this process plays out over the next many months. Yeah, this process, the process in Manhattan, but of course not the only process as well. What else might uh, come down the pipes? And I only have about a minute here, Dave, but walk us through the other criminal investigations uh, happening right now involving Donald Trump. 
foremost, there is still a federal investigation actively going on by the same special counsel's office into Donald Trump and what he did and what he didn't do on January 6, 2021, when a mob in Donald Trump's name attacked the U.S. Capitol. So the question there is, what was Donald Trump liable for, responsible for? Did he commit criminal acts in association with that attack? But in the U.S. state of Georgia, in Fulton County, where the city of Atlanta is, there is yet another investigation taking place there, separate and apart from these other three, that deals with whether Donald Trump had tried to uh, basically tilt the scales in his favor in the election, presidential election in 2020, taking place in that state. You might remember the phone call where Donald Trump basically said, hey, find me 11,000 votes. I got to win this thing. He ultimately lost Georgia by a very small amount. And surprisingly, Joe Biden won it. And that helped swing the election in Joe Biden's favor. So that, in a way, Michael, could even be potentially the most problematic of all of these cases that are swirling around Donald Trump, at least evidentiarily. Okay, we continue to watch. Uh, Dave will speak again. Thank you for this. That is David Leventhal. Thank you, Michael. Well, if it goes to his plan, the member of parliament for Ottawa Centre will be heading back to familiar ground. Yasser Nakvi officially throwing his hat into the ring and announcing his candidacy this past week to be the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Yasser Nakvi joins us right now to talk about his run. Mr. Nakvi, thank you for being here. Thank you, Michael. Now, as I said, familiar ground because you have already served uh, prior to uh, being an MP uh, 11 years at Queen's Park, the Ontario legislature. Why the desire to go back? You know, um, I thought really uh, hard about uh, deciding whether or not to seek the Ontario Liberal Party uh, leadership. And as I was having that sort of deep contemplation, I continued to go back to uh, my early childhood when I was 10 years old. My parents were involved in pro-democracy movement before we moved to Canada. When I was 10, my father was thrown into jail for leading a pro-democracy march. And that's a very profound period of my and time. And this was in? In Pakistan. Pakistan. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the biggest lessons, the early lessons I learned in my life at that age was that uh, uh, real leaders always stand up. They don't accept the status quo and they work hard to change it and to build a better future. Similarly, when a few years later, my parents decided to move to Canada, even though they were lawyers, lived comfortable middle-class lives, the status quo wasn't good enough because they wanted the kids to have a better life. And so, so Michael, that's what has always driven me. I did not get into politics to get comfortable. Challenging the status quo is in my DNA, and I really feel strongly that my party, the Ontario Liberal Party, needs a transformation. They need a strong, experienced leader like myself to do that work so that we can uh, restore the promise of Ontario, which has been slipping away and has been broken by Doug Ford. Okay, uh, a couple things you said there. One, transformation, two, experience. Let me touch on experience first, because as I say, 11 years uh, with the uh, Ontario Liberal government, you held several cabinet positions. You were the uh, Attorney General in Kathleen Wynne's government. Given the result of uh, her last election, is it a hindrance or a help that you held that cabinet position? The Liberal government, when they were in office, did a lot of good things. In fact, I would say to you that Ontario is a cleaner, fairer, and a just province as a result of the policies we championed. We brought in full-day kindergarten that allowed for better 
education for our children and and help for for parents. And this we, was before national childcare. Before national childcare, in fact, it set the ground for national uh, childcare that we have now from the federal government. Um, we got rid of coal as a source of creating electricity, a dirty dirty way of of doing it, making our air. Uh, cleaner, which has allowed for Ontario to be a leader in finding net zero uh, solutions. Um, we ensured pension security for Ontarians, but not only Ontarians, uh, but for all Canadians. That's the kind of work we were able to do in government. But like any other government, did we make did we make mistakes? Of course, uh, Doug Ford is making mistakes all the time. That is holding our province uh, back. My experience ensures that I know. Uh, how to make decisions. It's about making choices, and I've been at that table, but I've also learned from those mistakes, which makes me even a better uh, leader in order for us to not to repeat those mistakes. Okay, what were the mistakes, though, then? Because, you know, the last two provincial elections, and, you know, uh, Kathleen Wynne's was two, two back, uh, the Liberal Party of Ontario got trounced in both those elections. What was the mistake? What were the mistakes made by the government? Yeah, I think, I think uh, at a broader level, uh, Many governments, after a longer period of time, lose uh, contact with people. Uh, they, there's an element of lack of engagement that results in decision making uh, that may not directly uh, uh, reflect what people want. And I think I think we we suffered from that. One of the uh, specific ones that I have have reflected a lot on is the decision to sell Hydro One. I think we should. It was. It was a decision that was made to ensure that we are unlocking the value of that that public utility to pay for public transit. Um, so it was a trade-off. But I think we should have engaged Ontarians better. We should have heard of their views more to understand that they understand the 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 options that were available to us at that time. And if you look in in hindsight, the amount of electrification that we need to do in order to build a cleaner grid in order to really make sure that we uh, achieve net zero t target, then we, we probably would have made a different decision than what we did back then. Mm -hmm. And hydro rates, because that was certainly a lingering issue and still is for, for many people. And you talk to them about the Ontario Liberal go past government. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the Ontario Liberal government made uh, made a lot of investment to make sure that our our grid is up to up to standard. That allows us to get rid of coal. That allows us to have a more cleaner uh, electricity system. The kind of system that rest of Canada is looking at with envy and trying to uh, trying to uh, trying to copy. But of course, there was costs associated with it. We should have been more mindful of that and find ways to ensure that we provide reliefs. For, for Ontarians, and these are the kind of things that I've learned from, and I think makes me a far more effective leader. So that goes to the transformation that you're, you're talking about. Uh, there are only seven Liberals in the provincial legislature right now. Uh, beyond building that, you know, and of course that goes to an electoral win, how do you build the party at the ground level? Because that too seems a bit scattered from, from when you were in power last. Well, that's the big transformation piece, and you need a leader who actually has uh, the experience in, in building the party. I've served as the, as the president of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, I've traveled this province. I know a lot of the, uh, the activists who we are re-engaging, who have kind of walked away from the party because they were sensing that the purpose was missing to recreate that purpose. But here's my focus, uh, Michael. I want to build a big tent, an inclusive party, a party that is really reflective of all Ontarians. 
not a party that is just focused on 416 and 613 area codes, but a party that is strong in all 124 but ridings. What are the issues, though? And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm quickly losing our time here, but I need to. What are the issues that would lead to change? Because Doug Ford still enjoys, and his PC party still enjoys, uh, a high level of support in Ontario. Liberal Party's strength has always been a practical party that really focuses on making people's lives easier to live. I'm a practical liberal, and, and I've always uh, have focused on how do we put ourselves on the center of where Ontarians are. Right now, people are struggling. I continue to hear from people who family struggling to find a family doctor or nurse, or kids struggling in overcrowded classrooms, or young people working two or three jobs and struggling to pay rent and groceries. We need to come up with practical solutions so that we can help them with these struggles and live a better life to unleash their potential so that they can help build this province and restore the province promise of Ontario. Yes, sir, Nakhmi, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Well, a closing note as we end today's program, Alberta's Premier has a new cabinet in place this after last month's provincial election. Bill 1 of our new government will slam the door on personal and corporate tax increases and a sales tax, unless Albertans say otherwise, in a referendum. We will also continue to build partnerships and agreements with the Indigenous peoples of our province so they can more fully realize their goals and take their rightful place in Alberta's ec economy and society. And most of all, we will vigorously and fir firmly defend our province from disastrous federal policies that would devastate tens of thousands of hardworking families. Danielle Smith has chosen Mike Ellis to be Deputy Premier. Nate Horner is the new Finance Minister. Brian Jean will oversee Energy and Rebecca Schultz will oversee Environment. Adriana Lagrange is now Alberta's new Minister of Health and of course will continue the, to follow the story rather out of Edmonton in the weeks and months ahead. But for now, I'm Michael Serapio and for everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us on this Friday. We'll see you again next time.